You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Air Church. We exist to glorify God by making disciples of Jesus who love him and love their neighbour. We pray these sermons serve to deepen your love for and obedience to Jesus. And whilst we trust these podcast sermons bless you, we would not want them to replace you gathering with us personally as you're able to or committing to a local gospel church near you. So if you want to explore Jesus more, gather with us, or find a church near you, please get in touch through our website, harvestair.church. You are loved. Matthew chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be some uh, little Black Pew Bibles um, sitting around you. I think it'll be on page 760 um, if you want to turn there. So please do keep that open and um, just as we come to God's word um, let me just pray for us father we thank you that your word is living and active that it is sharper than any two-edged sword father I pray that it would pierce our souls uh, this morning as we hear it that it would comfort us that it would convict us and that it would point us to Jesus pray that it would bear much for it in our lives and in the strength of your spirit we would seek to obey it as we go about our everyday lives in the week to come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, so um, uh, as you know, we're, we're kind of uh, our third, third sermon into our Kingdom Living series in the, uh, the, the Gospel of Matthew, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, that well-known uh, teaching section from Jesus. And uh, let me just say up front, um, we've, we've had two, two sermons now, and uh, the stuff we're about to go into Um, There's some really kind of deep heart things that we're going to touch upon over the next number of weeks. So there may be a number of things that really hit home to you or maybe even bring up some significant issues either presently in your life or things that have happened to you in the past. Things that might make you realize that there's issues in your heart that need to be addressed. Um, So as we kind of uh, go into this morning's section of, of Matthew 5 and in the weeks to come. Let me encourage you as you um, encounter those things, as those things maybe surface, past, present, whatever they are, let me encourage you to go to God and His Word to be reminded of the depth of the grace and mercy of the gospel, to speak to one another, to go for help to one another. Um, if you're part of a small group, to allow those around you to carry that and help you maybe fight whatever it is in your heart that's going on. If you're not in a small group, we'd encourage you to get into one, to be around people who can help you carry and deal with the things that are going on in your heart and your life. Speak to one of the elders, and also, as you saw in the, the weekly email that came out yesterday, I'm recommending some resources over the next number of weeks to really help you work on the things that are maybe going on in your heart. Um, just a, a couple of examples of that. We're thinking about lust and anger this morning. Um, so two little books I've recommended in that email, um, little devotionals to really help you work through those issues in your life. Please don't just come over the next number of Sundays and just let these things sit and then walk out the door. Please don't do that. There's some, there will be, there may be some urgent heart things in your life that need to be addressed, past or present. And we'd encourage you to work those out uh, within the life of this church and maybe with some helpful resources as well. So I want, to pick, help, uh, I want you to picture a, a guy. His wife has just caught him looking at sexualized pictures of women on his phone. And when confronted about it, the guy shouts back at his wife in a demeaning way, claiming that she's invading his privacy 
and is exaggerating the seriousness of what he's doing. So deep down, he knows he's been caught. He knows what he's doing is wrong. But in the back of the mind, he's thinking, in the back of his own mind, he's thinking, it's only pictures. He's not actually cheated on her. And the shouting isn't really that bad. It's just words. I'll say sorry later. It'll be all okay. That guy's shallow standards of behavior are the same as those of the Pharisees and the the scribes that Jesus addressed at the end of our section last week. If you look down at verses 19 to 20, they were relaxing Jesus' commands. Their righteousness wasn't good enough. Our righteousness needs to exceed that of theirs. They were concerned with outward behavior only. They set low bars of morality. But the moral demands of Jesus go much deeper than that. They go much deeper than what we just do. They go all the way to our hearts. And the Pharisees in those days, they looked spiritually healthy, but they weren't. Their lives may have seemed righteous and good to those then. Your life might appear righteous and good to those around you. You might be good at putting up an act. But underneath, they were, we may be, rotting. They might not have crossed those big lines like murder and adultery. But they had crossed the lines within their heart. They just didn't care about it. So if we were to do a heart scan on that guy, okay, in many ways we're going to go through a heart scan this morning together. If we were to do a heart scan on that guy, what would we find within his heart? What would a heart scan on you and me this morning reveal about what's really going on in our hearts? So this morning, God, through his word in these verses, is going to perform a heart scan on each of us to determine where our hearts are at spiritually, particularly when it comes to the areas of anger and lust. So the question for you and me this morning is, are we spiritually healthy? If not, what are we going to do about it? What can Jesus do about it? That's the important question this morning. So if we're struggling in these areas right now, which we will all be to some extent, to a greater or lesser extent, these verses are here to show us the nature of these desires. Desires the world that, that the world tells us is okay to act upon, don't, doesn't it? that we sometimes fool ourselves into thinking it's okay if I act on these, give in to them, but are ultimately destructive desires that require urgent action. So God, through his word this morning, is calling me and you to respond by dealing immediately and radically with anger and lust in our hearts, lest we endanger our eternal destiny. He's calling us in these verses. These are not light verses this morning. He is calling us to deal immediately and radically with anger and lust in our hearts, lest we endanger our eternal destiny. So the first uh, thing we're going to look at this morning, no fancy sermon points this morning, anger, verses 21 to 26. Jesus is is here seeking to correct a a shallow interpretation of the law. The, The religious leaders of Jesus' day, they were creating loopholes, they were pushing boundaries, they were doing the bare minimum, all the while ignoring their hearts. And in keeping with what he's already said in verses 17 to 20, he's not changing the laws or commands here. Jesus has shown how deep these demands were always designed to go and how deep they are still designed to go. They are demands that go all the way to our hearts. If you look at Leviticus 19, 17 to 18, which will come up on the screen for you, you shall not hate your brother in your heart. 
Jesus is here. He's not teaching something new. He's applying these, these things the way they were always meant to be applied. Do not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, what Jesus is teaching here isn't new. Leviticus shows us that. He says in verses 21 to 22 of chapter 5, if you look down, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, hear the authority there, I say to you, thus says the Lord, God declares that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So a, a shallow law, a shallow discipleship, a shallow Christian life says as long as we've not done the big things, as long as we've not committed murder, we're okay. Jesus says the heart attitude of anger is equally as bad and makes us equally as guilty. 1 John 3:15. everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So obviously the earthly consequences and damages of murder are more significant than that of anger, okay, than of calling someone a fool. Not all sins are equal in consequence or significance, but they all are all equal in nature. What he, Jesus is teaching here is that the heart behind both of those things, anger and murder, are by nature the same. They're equally as serious and equally make us guilty before God. And it's a heart of anger that leads to murder. And we'll see this with adultery as well. In many ways, these two things are laid out very similarly here. As we'll see with adultery too, murder is the fruit of a heart that is angry. Murder, if we want to think of it this way, is just the tip of the iceberg. It is the fruit of a diseased, angry heart whose desires and motives have been allowed to grow and fester and become distorted with each passing day over a period of time. So we're going to spend some time looking at the scan results of an angry heart, of my heart, of your heart. Firstly, what are the symptoms? Well, the obvious symptom, right, is murder. But we could throw in there as well all forms of assault, all forms of abuse, physical, verbal, spiritual, whatever it might be, conflict and strife. We argue, we fight, we cause division. But maybe there's more subtle symptoms as well. We're a defensive person, we're an impatient, irritable person, we're critical, judgmental sarcastic, harsh. Maybe those are some of the more subtle symptoms of an angry heart. What is the disease beneath these symptoms? The disease is anger, and it flows from a heart that has distorted sinful desires. We need to understand the dynamic of sin if we are going to be able to combat it and make progress against it. James uh, the book of James is really helpful here. James 1, verses 14 to 15. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So you see it begins at the level of desire. 
James 4 then speaks specifically to anger and to quarrels and fights. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet. See the desire there? See the love? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Being an angry person isn't primarily the result of biology, upbringing, or circumstances. Having an angry dad growing up is not an excuse for being an angry person now. Being provoked by someone isn't an excuse. Anger, like all sin, flows from our hearts, hearts with sinful, distorted desires and faulty thinking. So the disease is anger, And what are some of maybe the the underlined distorted desires that cause that anger? Let's look at a few of them. And just to note here that these desires in and of themselves aren't bad, but they're bad when we look to fulfill them elsewhere apart from God. The desire for power. I get angry when people don't do what I say. Control. I get angry when people don't do things my way. I have my way of doing things. I have my standard. I'm going to get angry if it's not done my way. Respect. I get angry when people don't give me respect and affirmation. And then greed from James 4. I get angry when I don't get what I want. What's the prognosis? The symptoms, the disease, the prognosis. Well, the short-term prognosis for an angry heart is this. Your relationships, my relationships, will be marked by constant strife and conflict. We will force other people to have to unfairly force other people to deal with our sin, our pain, and our hurt. We will make them experience pain and hurt because of our sinful hearts. We will become isolated. Nobody will want to be around us. Family and friends won't want anything to do with us. We will become distant from other people. And we are setting ourselves up, laying the foundations for committing serious acts of violence and harm further down the line, the more these desires continue to grow. What's the long-term prognosis? It's the same as it will be with adultery, and it's extremely sober for you and me. It is this judgment, and hell. Prognosis without treatment, long-term, is judgment and hell. A heart that is dominated by any sinful desire, a person who willfully persists in unrepentant anger before God and others, and who fails to bear the genuine fruit of repentance over their lifetime. Yes, there will be times when we'll slip up in this, Yes, there will be times when we say harsh words. But if there is no genuine fruit of repentance over our lifetimes, those people are destined for death, as James 1 told us. They are destined for judgment and hell, as Matthew 5, 22 tells us. God will not allow unrepentant hearts, unrepentant anger to go unchecked in this world he will rightly judge and punish our anger and hatreds. Where do we go from here? We need urgent treatment. We need urgent treatment, and that urgent treatment for anger is immediate reconciliation. We see that in verses 23 to 26. Let's just note before we go into these two examples, okay, and maybe where your mind is already going, okay, 
Let's just note where the responsibility lies in these two examples here in verses 23 to 26. It primarily lies with us as those who have wronged others. If you look down at the verses, uh, 23 to 26, so if you, not the person sitting beside you, so if you, verse 25, come to terms quickly with your, with your, if we are sitting here applying these verses to someone else in our head right now, we've missed the whole point of this passage. If you're sitting thinking about someone else right now, you, I, are missing the whole point of this passage. This applies to us first. Verses 23 to 24, the focus here is on relationships within the life of the church in the context of worship. True worship of God cannot take place within the church context, within the worship context, if we have not repented towards those we've wronged. Matthew 5, 23 to 24, look down. If you are offering your gift at the altar, if you're coming to worship the Lord, of course, we no longer have to go and sacrifice at the altar. Jesus has made the ultimate sacrifice for you. If, if we come to worship the Lord and there remember that we have wronged someone, we must stop, leave what we're doing, and go and be reconciled to our brother, and then come and worship the Lord. It is no small thing to come before the Lord with unreconciled, unrepentant conflict in your life. If you or I have wronged someone this morning and we know we've done that and we haven't yet repented of that and asked forgiveness from them, then we need to do that as a matter of urgency. You need to do that right as soon as you leave today. You need to repent. We need to repent in our hearts right now before we continue to offer worship to the Lord. It's a matter of urgency. It's a matter of worship. It's not just about restoring relationships on earth. It's about worship to God. In these verses, is on the one who has caused the offense who is to initiate reconciliation. So if someone has wronged us, okay, if, we're on the, if we are on the other end of that, okay, so let's think that way for a moment. If we are on the other end of it and someone has wronged us and they haven't owned it, or you maybe think they're blind to it, then Matthew 18, later on in Matthew's gospel, shows us a helpful way to deal with that. In just a little while, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. And we see in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Lord's Supper serves as a regular prompt in the life of the church towards reconciliation. Did you know that? Did you know that? Yes, it's about primarily coming to remember the sacrifice that Christ has made for us, to be reminded of His grace, but it also serves significantly as a prompt, a regular prompt, hence why we take it regularly towards horizontal reconciliation. And there's a strong warning there in 1 Corinthians 11 to not partake in communion until we have been reconciled. And communion itself reminds us of our gospel motives to reconcile. We forgive as we've been forgiven. We forgive because of how God in Christ has forgiven us. We reconcile because of how God in Christ has reconciled us through the blood of the cross. The next example then we see is the example of the, the law court. The exhortations in these two examples are essentially the same. The, the first example really highlights the necessity of the reconciliation. It needs to happen. And then this second example really highlights the urgency of our reconciliation. 
come to terms. Look down, verse 25. Come to terms tomorrow, next week, when I feel like it, come to terms quickly with our accuser. We have to do all that we can to make the situation right. And the warning in verse 26 is if, if that we don't, we will suffer the consequences for it. Both in an earthly sense, as verse 26 highlights, but also if we continue non-repentance in an eternal sense. It's about acting immediately to make earthly reconciliation with others as possible as we can as well as considering the bigger rec- picture of eternal reconciliation with God. So if we fail to act immediately when we have sinned against someone, if we fail to do all that we can to make peace and pursue reconciliation, then these two examples warn us about our standing before God in worship and the consequences that come our way if we don't. That's the urgent treatment, immediate reconciliation. What's the long-term treatment? Repentance and faith. The long-term treatment is repentance and faith. So these aren't meant to be kind of two sequential forms of treatment. They're to run side by side. There's the urgent, and the repentance and faith must come also. But repentance and faith is an ongoing thing. It needs to happen all the time. We need to ask ourselves, why is my heart doing this? Why am I angry? What truth, truths, do I need to turn to in faith about Jesus? And what desires do I need to turn away from in repentance? What truths about Jesus do I need to turn back to in faith and grab hold of afresh? And what sinful desires do I need to turn away from? So it's not just about taking practical action, although these verses are extremely practical. In order for long-term change to happen in our hearts, we need renewed affections renewed loves. The uh, well-known free church Scottish minister Thomas Chalmers uh, preached a famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. What he was trying to communicate there was in order for bad or sinful affections and desires to be removed, they need to be displaced by a new, more powerful Christ-like affection. So it needs to happen in our hearts long-term. We cannot, listen, we cannot crowbar sin out of our hearts. That's not how it works. We need Christ. So repentance and faith is something which marks us as we enter the kingdom. We saw that in the beginning of Matthew's gospel. It's both an initial thing, but it's also an ongoing thing. It needs to be an ongoing thing. Tim Chester says this about ongoing repentance and faith. I'll be up on the screen for you. We become Christians through repentance and faith, And we grow as Christians through continual faith and repentance. Repentance is a lifelong, continuous activity of turning back to God from God-dethroning desires. And repentance is not just turning from sinful behavior, but turning from the idols and desires that cause that sinful behavior. It's like trying to get rid of a plant by just chopping off the leaves. You need to get to the roots. Faith is the realization that God is much, much better than my sinful desires. Do you see the dynamic at play there? Repentance from sinful, distorted, empty, damning desires. Turning in faith to the much, much better desires of Christ and of God. 
So when it comes to anger, we must repent of our anger, our desires for control, respect, power, and greed, and instead we need to look by faith to Jesus. If we desire power in Jesus, we have a powerful Savior who calls us to humbly serve others as He has done for us. If our desire is for control in Jesus, we don't have to be in control. We can't be in control. Instead, we look to Him who is in control and who works everything out for our good. Therefore, we can be patient with others in the same way He's been patient towards us. If our desire is for respect in Jesus, we have all the affirmation we could ever need. If our desire is for things to satisfy, in Jesus, we have all we will ever need. So we don't need to be angry because of what we don't have. Over a lifetime with continual repentance and faith, an angry heart can, can become a calm heart. Anger doesn't have to define you. It doesn't have to define me. When we draw closer to Jesus and are changed by his spirit, an angry heart can become a calm heart. We will become more like him and be increasingly defined by the things we saw at the beginning of chapter 5, poor in spirit, meek, gentle, merciful peacemakers. So that's anger. What about lust? Verses 27 to 30. His teaching here on, uh, Jesus' teaching on lust here really follows a similar pattern to that of anger. Verse 27 to 28, if you look down, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman or man for that sake, for, 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 this, for the sake of, the, of what it's saying here, a, a woman or a man with lustful intent, okay, it's not just kind of an innocent, unintentional desiring here. There's lustful intent, don't miss that word, has already committed adultery with her, with him in his heart. So Jesus again here, is taking what the law is always supposed to do and repressing it into the hearts of those who are listening. Exodus 20, 17 shows us this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The word covet there is basically the same word as the word to lust, to long for with sinful intent. To lust is morally equivalent to adultery. Again, of course, the act of adultery and, and, it's, and the results that it causes is so much more damaging. The consequence is so much greater in an earthly sense, but the heart behind both is the same. And in God's eyes, leaves us just as guilty. What are the symptoms of a lustful heart? We go back to our scan. Well, obviously, adultery and when Jesus is highlighting adultery here, the whole, if we take the whole New Testament into account, we could say that all sexual acts outside of covenant marriage between a man and a woman are forms of perversion and go against God's law. So we have the, the most significant act here. We also have pornography. Then we have inappropriate touching or stimulation of ourselves or of others. Those are behaviors. Those are things that people indulge in. What about some of the more subtle symptoms of a lustful heart? Fantasizing, dwelling on someone sexually, flirting with someone innocently, 
frustration or lack of intimacy with your spouse, a, a, a lingering over images or movies or TV shows or sports or whatever it might be, or lingering in unhelpful scenarios where you know you're going to be tempted towards acting upon sinful desires. And then isolation. Isolating yourself from others, particularly as you maybe use electronic devices. Those are maybe some of the more subtle symptoms of lust. What's the diagnosis? The diagnosis is lust and the desires, some of, not all of, it's not exhaustive here, but some of the desires, the, the sinful desires that lie behind that. Desire for pleasure, again, these are good desires, but distorted when we seek for them outside of God's ordained relationships and God himself. Pleasure, I lust because of the pleasure and the excitement it brings me. Intimacy, I lust because I'm lonely. Respect, I lust because nobody likes me. But through dwelling or fantasizing or pornography, I find affirmation and approval. I lust because of the release or the refuge it gives me. I indulge in lust because life is difficult. And it gives me something to look forward to in the midst of hardships and failures of my life. What's the prognosis without treatment? Well, in the short term, pleasure is temporary. Hebrews 11 talks about the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's momentary. The damage is significant though. The damage is significant. Proverbs 6, 32 to 33 says, he who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. He will get wounds and dishonor and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Lust enslaves us and it enslaves others through our use of things like pornography, quite literally enslaves others. It destroys our view of sex, of the opposite sex. We won't be able to form genuine friendships with the opposite sex. It'll become almost impossible. Porn and lust are, yes, the act of adultery is so destructive, so destructive, but that, the use of porn and, 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 and unchecked lust are so destructive as well. And it's not just Christians that are saying that now. Society, hopefully, is slowly waking up to the horrific, destructive nature of the sexual revolution of lust and of pornography. It weakens our relationship with Jesus because we'll go to lust and porn instead of going to Jesus. We'll go to the relationship and, and the, the things we shouldn't be doing instead of going to Jesus. We're sinning against God. We're sinning against our current spouse. We're sinning against a future spouse. And are making them and are doing things that they will have to carry. Sinful expectations and frustrations, things that will be carried into marriage. They can be healed. They can be dealt with. There is forgiveness. Don't get wrong. But those will be things that will have to be carried into marriage. And your conscience will make you feel dirty. And in time, our consciences will become seared. Long-term prognosis is the same. Judgment and hell. What's the urgent treatment required? Well, with anger, it was immediate reconciliation. With lust, it is radical mortification. If you look down at verses 29 to 30, if your right eye causes you to sin, 
tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Mortification really is a word which captures that urgent amputation. It's a word that communicates murder, putting to death, killing, killing sin and temptation. The the eye and the hand that Jesus talks about here, the eye and the hand really represent, if we think about it, the, the gateway to your hearts. And then the hand represents the will of the heart. So we must take radical action to prevent our, our hearts lusting, lusting by, by guarding that gateway and by acting, on, uh, acting to stop us um, acting on our lust. The right eye and the right hand also speak to, um, as, some, as some have noted, the, the value, value and importance of those things. The right, high, the right eye and the right hand were seen to be more significant, more important. Therefore, to get rid of them is to realize that we need to be willing to do everything, to give up everything in order to become pure in heart. Take away the most valuable things if we were to enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so Jesus here isn't literally telling us to cut off our our arm and to tear out our eye. After all, addressing the behavior is, is good and helpful, but it doesn't ultimately get to the heart. He's using this extreme language here to invoke the radical way lust needs to be dealt with. We see that throughout the New Testament as well. The call in 1 Corinthians, 2 Timothy 2, to flee sexual immorality, to flee from it. So practically, that does mean we do everything we can to guard our eyes and our hearts. We remove ourselves from tempting or compromising situations. We have to be wise about being alone with the opposite sex. That doesn't mean we can't, can't be alone or we can't have good friendships with the opposite sex. We don't want every every relationship with the opposite sex to become sexualized, but we must be wise about that. If necessary, it means putting internet filters and accountability software on our computers and our phones. If you're a parent, you have a responsibility to, to guard the hearts and the eyes and the hands of your children. It means we should, if we need to, we should only use our, our devices in public, public places where everyone else can see our screen. It, mean, it means filtering our TV and movie content not watching shows or sports that would cause our mind to wander in an unhelpful way. It might mean coming off certain social media platforms like Instagram or TikTok if that causes us to be prone to linger and to watch things we shouldn't. If you aren't married but are in a relationship, it means setting clear physical boundaries. It means not being unhelpfully alone for long periods of time. It definitely means not sleeping together or being in the same room or bed together. It means we need to seek practically the help and the encouragement and the counsel and the accountability of other Christians and bring these things out into the light where they will lose their power and where other people can step in and help us. So all those things are necessary and they are very helpful, but ultimately they only serve to buy us time. They serve, importantly, to buy us time so that the desires of our hearts and affections can be reorientated back to Jesus. And all the benefits and all the joy and all the pleasure that are to to be found in him. That's the long-term work that's needed. Our hearts will only ever be reorientated when they find their deeper joy 
and intimacy and security and pleasure in Christ himself. David recognized that when he sinfully, um, when he sinned in committing adultery with Bathsheba in Psalm 51 verse 12, we see him pray, it should be on the screen for you, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Why ultimately did his heart go after Bathsheba? Because he'd lost the joy of his salvation. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. That's where it began. Yes, there was loads of things that led to the actual act of adultery, but that's where it began. He lost his joy in God. So the long-term treatment that's needed then is the same, repentance and faith. What sinful desires do I need to turn from? What specific, joyful, what specific, joyful truths do I need to turn back to Jesus and remember and grab hold of? Well, when I'm desiring pleasure, I need to remember that in Jesus, I have true, lasting joy and pleasure. When I desire intimacy in Jesus, I am more loved than I could ever imagine. When I desire respect in Jesus, I have a friend, a brother, a husband who will never leave me. When I desire release and refuge in Jesus, I have a security and a certainty that means nothing can ever harm me and no failure will ever define me. With the good news of the gospel, with new hearts which are being changed by God's spirit, we can strive for immediate reconciliation and radical mortification, knowing that progress can be made. Let me remind you of that this morning. These things don't have to define us anymore. In Christ, we're no longer enslaved to sin. In Christ, the power of sin has lost its grip on us. In Christ, we can resist the devil and he will flee from us. It is possible. There is a way out from the temptation that we face on a daily basis. We're no longer condemned in Christ. The law is now written on our hearts and obedience in these things is not burdensome yet we're still in a daily battle. We're still in a daily battle with the remaining sinful desires of our hearts. And so we have to wage war against that anger and lust. Yes, in Jesus, there's no condemnation. Yes, we're forgiven in Jesus. If you're a Christian here this morning, those things are true of you. But we need to give weight to these warnings. We need to give due weight to the warnings that are in these verses this morning. We need to give them the weight that they deserve and that they demand on our lives. If we aren't producing the fruit of repentance, then we are on the path to proving our faith is fake. If we're not producing long-term fruit in our lives in these things, we're on the path to proving our faith is fake. We need to keep praying and striving towards Matthew 5, 8, pure purity of heart that enables us to see God. The good news of both of these things, anger and lust, is this. Jesus has died for them. Hell no longer has to be our destiny. Jesus is better than them. Our ability to come to Jesus for forgiveness and help in these things is not dependent on how well we're doing in them. 
We don't need to fix ourselves up to come to Jesus. Come to him and he will change you. Jesus has the power to help us fight them because we can't do it alone. Anger and lust are not inevitable in our lives. There's always a way out. We can change. And one day we'll be fully transformed. And the battle against these things, against all sinful desires, will one day end. So we must deal immediately and radically with anger and lust in our hearts. Yet in Jesus, we have someone who, unlike us, is slow to anger. Slow to anger. He was only ever righteous in his anger. He never lusted. But he was murdered for our anger and lust. He died for the sin of our sexual immorality. He gave up his life to redeem his angry and sexually stained bride. The church. You and me. So that he might reconcile us, save us from hell, cleanse us, wash us change us and present us holy and blameless. So loved ones, friends, let us wage war against the anger and lust in our hearts. Let's pursue those things, immediate reconciliation, radical mortification, as if our lives depended on it, because they do. Let's pursue those things as if our lives depended on it, because they do, but let's do it in the grace and the confidence that ultimately our lives depend on Jesus. I'm just going to end by um, praying a couple of prayers for us. Um, A couple of prayers, really, just to come before the Lord honestly about these two things, um, to confess where we have fallen short in these areas and to take hope in the truths of the gospel. And now I'm going to invite Derek up to lead us around the Lord's table. So let me just uh, pray for us, please, by your head. And again, take these things onto your own heart. Take these things onto your own lip as I pray them for us. Lord, we confess to you our sin of anger. We confess that we have violated your command not to let the sun go down while we are angry. We confess that our anger has brought harm to others, that it has grieved the Holy Spirit, that it has corrupted our prayers and worship, and that it has prevented us from living lives that are righteous in your sight. We ask you, Lord, to cleanse us of our anger and to give us the grace instead to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because our anger does not bring about the righteous life that you desire for us. Lord, lead us in that way of righteousness and cleanse us for your name's sake. Lord, we live in a world in which lust is exalted as a virtue rather than acknowledged as a sin. Promiscuity is encouraged adultery is excused, indecency is mass-marketed, perversion is championed as normal behavior, precious humans are being exploited for destructive, wickedly indulgent purposes. We confess that we have fallen short as humans and are too easily tempted by the lust of the flesh. We confess that we are prone to the same types of behavior that have lured the world away from you and from your desire for purity and chastity. We confess in our sin of lust we have exchanged your truth for a lie and have worshipped created things, placing them above you, our creator. Cleanse us with hyssop 
and we will be clean. Wash us and we will be whiter than snow. Turn your face from our sins and blot out all of our iniquity. Create in us a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within us. Do not cast us from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us. Restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us willing spirits to sustain us. We offer our bodies to you as a living sacrifice, asking you to transform us by the renewing of our minds and hearts. We ask you to wash away our sin and help us to walk in newness of life. In the name of Jesus and through his cleansing blood, we ask this. Amen.